you'll permit me, I'll just brag on my daughter just a little bit. I love the fact that she's able to make just how very personal uh, the Word of God is. Uh, Hannah, you reminded me today that uh, above all else, God's Word is for me. God's Word is for you. God had you in mind when by His Spirit He moved people to write down the things that He was saying to them and the things that He was showing to them. And they wrote it down. Now those men had no idea that 2,000 years later that we would be sitting in a place called Texas with open Bibles and open hearts to receive from God the things that they were writing down. They couldn't have begun to fathom. But God knew 2,000 years ago and beyond that you would be here in this moment. He saw this moment and he saw you here. And he wrote his word so that he could speak to you in this moment. So we're talking about how we should read the Bible. I don't I don't listen, I don't think I don't think for the for the church today there's there's a more necessary, a more needed uh, message than the message of the Bible. I mean, there there's some Christian leaders writing some really incredible stuff out there. There's some Christian leaders out there writing some not very incredible stuff. But the most needed message today is not how to live your best life now. It's not how to have a, 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 a fulfilled Christian life. It's, it's the message of God's Word. And that message is not how to have your best life now. It's how to have your best life for eternity. And there's a difference. Now, there are dozens of translations including modern English translations, but to many, the Bible, the Bible can, re, can seem difficult sometimes to read and understand. And among the, the misunderstandings concerning the Bible are questions related to this claim that the Bible is divinely inspired. In fact, I, I, I'm finding it more and more being attacked. And not by necessarily... Uh, uh, the non-believing world, but more and more it's being attacked by people who call themselves Christian leaders. So there's this question of, of what this means when we say divinely inspired. In fact, if you don't get anything else I say today beyond the reading of God's Word, I want you to get this. All Scripture is breathed out and endowed with the supernatural power to transform us in the love of Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and endowed with the supernatural power to transform us in the love of Christ. That speaks to both uh, the, the source and the purpose of Scripture. Uh, the Bible is a divinely inspired canon of writings and today we're going to talk about what that means because listen it is critical it is critical to how you should read the bible it's critical to understand the source and purpose of the bible when you when you sit down and you open it up to understand where this came from who it is that is saying this it's critical we're going to talk about the history of how the, new, uh, how the Bible, particularly the New Testament, came to be. Because, listen, there are a lot of myths and misconceptions about its origins. And again, these things aren't being attacked by ne necessarily by uh, 
uh, unbelievers outside the church, but by bad scholars within the church. And so we're going to talk about the, the, the history of how we got our Bible. We're going we're gonna to unpack some of those myths. We're going to talk about it. Another source of misunderstanding for Christians and non-Christians alike is the question of purpose. As an inspired book, is it a textbook? Is it a storybook? Is it a history book? And is it a philosophy book? Is it just, just something, is it a feel-good how-to book? I, I don't know. What do I, what do I do with what I read? Well, what a relief it is. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz, right? What a relief it is that the answers to those questions can be found throughout the scriptures. And, and one New Testament writer addresses it with one really concise statement. So I want to invite you to uh, turn in your Bible or open your Bible app to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we'll be studying from today. I should be looking out a bunch of like big hair and puffy sleeves and mullets when I when I hear that music uh, I love I love the 80s vibe there we believe that Paul wrote this letter second Timothy uh, from uh, Rome sometime around AD 67 or 68 this is during his second imprisonment as he's as he's waiting to be executed now while Paul's circumstances are certainly dire, they were dire, his concern is to pass on his knowledge to his student, Timothy. He's also concerned for what he calls sound doctrine. Uh, and I know that, that gives all of us a little bit of a cringe uh, because we've been, we have been, uh, uh, we've been conditioned by the world uh, to to feel cringy when we talk about doctrine, but but Paul's concerned for something he calls sound doctrine. You see, false Christians uh, are teaching false Christian teaching. They're spreading uh, false Christian doctrine, even in the first century. Most of these uh, most of these so-called false teachings that we that we get today, things like the prosperity gospel and and some of these other, there's nothing new under the sun, folks. There's nothing new. These, these, these things that we consider new false teachings, no, 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 no. They go all the way back to the first century. To the first century. There were false teachings and false Christian teachers. They're spreading these heresies. They're spreading these false teachings uh, throughout, uh, throughout the world. And people are falling for, for whatever sounds good rather than what is true. And we have that same we have that same danger today. People, listen, people are falling for what sounds good rather than what is true. The Bible talks about that there'll be a time when people will not be able to endure sound doctrine. They'll have what, what Paul calls itching ears. We're constantly running around looking for somebody to speak something new that sounds good. We want to we be told it's okay, we're okay, we're all okay. And you can transcend your, your, your human life and, and that all sounds good. Even in the church, we've, we've mingled in some of these kind of new age ideas into the pure doctrine of the Bible. And so there, there are churches today that, that aren't preaching what is true. They're preaching what sounds good. They're preaching what people will accept. I was having a, I was having a conversation a while back and there was a, there, there was a pastor telling me, I, I, I'm not sure that, that I'd be able to get by preaching uh, some of these things in the church. 
I mean, what kind of world do we live in when preachers have to sit down and go, am I willing to take the risk to get up and preach the truth in a church? Because we worry far too much about what people will give instead of what people have a chance of losing. I'm more concerned with what you, what you have the chance of losing today, what you could gain today, than I am concerned about what you give. And so people, people even in the first century are falling for whatever sounds good instead of what is true. And so Paul directs Timothy to the sufficiency of Scripture by providing understanding for the supremacy of the Bible as the authoritative Word of God. So I want us to read this powerful statement. Just two verses this morning. We're going to begin with verse 16. But first, let's reverence God's Word and let's receive it with prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for your Word. This divinely inspired text. You breathed this out for this very moment. You spoke to us when you spoke to Paul. We thank you for the word of God, for the miracle of how you brought it into our possession today. We receive it today. We pray, Lord, that your word would find fertile soil in our, in our hearts, that it will take root, that it will grow, that it will bear fruit. God, that it will transform our lives so that we can take hold of the abundant life in Christ and live, truly live in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, just two verses this morning, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul writing as he is awaiting execution. And he says to Timothy, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, admittedly, this morning, I do, I do love the eloquent finality of the King James Version, which renders verse 16 to say, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I love that today. I love the eloquent finality of that. Here, Paul affirms the authoritative nature of Scripture by saying, first and foremost, that Scripture, all Scripture, is inspired. Scripture is inspired. Just in case you're wondering where I'm at on that this morning. Scripture is inspired. Now, to better understand what inspiration is, Let's jump in right in with a word study this morning. I haven't given my word nerds a word study for a while, so I got you today. Uh, Ashley's back there clapping. Yes, we got, we got a word study. And, and so Paul uses the word, this is, this is a great word, it is theonoustos. Theonoustos. I love this word. This is a coin. Koine is the, it just means common. This was the common Greek uh, uh, language that was common. And it, it was to the ancient world what English is today. And so theonoustos is this great koine word that is, the, is a compounding of theos, meaning God, and pneuma, which means breath or breathe. And by the way, we use this word pneuma uh, to describe the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit as the breath of God. Pneuma. So you get theonustos. Theonustos, which literally means God's breath. 
God's breathing. We get this picture here, this wonderful word picture of God breathing, which is why the English Standard uh, Version translates this word to say, breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. If you want to understand the origins of Scripture, you've got to understand that first and foremost, Scripture is inspired. It is breathed out by God. And by the way, not only Paul, but the Apostle Peter also affirms this. Now, I particularly like the way the message paraphrases what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, saying, the main thing to keep in mind here is that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of private opinion. And why? Because it is not something concocted in the human heart. Prophecy resulted when the Holy Spirit prompted men and women to speak God's word. So that's two apostles. We're not just talking about the opinion of of Paul here. Paul being the, the, the divisive figure that he is in today's Christian culture. It's not just the opinion of Paul, it's also the opinion of Peter. And by the way, those two guys rarely agreed on much. The truth is, they were two men cut from the same cloth. They were both hard-headed. They were both strong leaders. And he disagreed a lot. But on this point, they both agree. Scripture is inspired. Two apostles agreeing that Scripture isn't inspired. So the word that Paul employs here, theonoustos, it doesn't really tell us anything about the peculiar character of inspiration beyond the fact that it proceeds from God. So what does it mean exactly? What does this mean, inspired, breathed out by God? Is it the same as natural human inspiration, like John Denver singing about the Rocky Mountains or country roads? Or or Taylor Swift writing about her latest breakup? Like, who in the world would date that woman? I just, I can't figure that out. I feel really sorry for Kelsey because I don't think he realizes that he is the subject of a future song. And if it's a really bad breakup, maybe a whole album, I'm not sure. Well, the simple answer to that question is no, no. It's not like human inspiration because the source of this inspiration is not natural. It's not natural. John Denver, John Denver uh, takes a drive uh, through West Virginia and he's inspired to, to write Country Roads. Almost Heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. You know, it's, he's inspired by the natural wor- world around him. It's not the same. Biblical inspiration is not the same because you're not being inspired by the natural surroundings. The source of that inspiration is different. This is the Holy Spirit here breathing out, inspiring these people to write. I've heard inspiration explained as though it were some kind of possession experience, as if the the God of of the universe was in control of a person like like he was a puppet. There are serious theological problems with this view. Not of the least of which is that nowhere in Scripture ever do we see God possessing the body of human beings or controlling them like puppets. Nowhere. Never happened. Never will. That's not how God works. The writers of Scripture were prophets. They weren't shaman. They weren't shaman. They weren't possessed by the Holy Spirit. They didn't they didn't get, and by the way, when you, when you encounter somebody who claims to have this kind of experience with God, they're lying to you. They may be possessed by a spirit, but it is not the Holy Spirit. So, so these, these people who are, who are writing down the things that they're inspired to write, they're not, they're, they're prophets, they're not shaman, they're not, they're not possessed by God, they don't lose control of their, of their bodies, it's not like God is taking over. They're writing out of their full humanity and their personal human experience while being profoundly moved and guided by the supernatural power of the Spirit. I would love to be able to take the time this morning to dive deeper and show you some examples 
I think this morning of Daniel and Ezekiel who drew from the iconography of Babylon. When you read those two prophets in particular, you'll notice right away that they read differently than any of the other prophets, and that is because uh, they used the iconography around them. They were in exile in Babylon, and so their prophecies, the things that they're describing are different. They're drawing from the, from the world around them as the Holy Spirit. They're, they're groping for human words to describe heavenly things. I could take you over to John, or, or rather to Revelation, written by, the, written by the Apostle John. And I can show you how one minute, one minute he is taking word-for-word word dictation. I mean, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and Jesus came and, and appeared to him and said, write down these things exactly what I tell you to write. I've got some letters for some churches. I've got some things I want to say. And so one minute he's taking down word-for-word dictation, and then the next minute he is struggling to find earthly words to describe heavenly things. So I wish we had the time to really dig in and and get into the minutiae of that because I'm I'm just a nerd that way. But we don't. We don't have that kind of time. But I want you to understand this morning, in no way... Does this reality diminish, diminish rather the profound implication that the very Spirit of God flowed through these people and out of them as they penned their letters and books? To be fair, though, contextually speaking, when Paul is talking about Scripture, he is, in fact, referring to what you and I would call the Old Testament. Now, what we know as the New Testament wasn't completed until around A.D. 90, a little over 20 years after Paul wrote this letter. So before we move on, I want us to jump in the Wayback Machine this morning, all right? I want want to give you a quick history of how we got the New Testament, how God not only inspired the writers, but how he guided the entire process. And I think this is really important for us to understand. I want you to see the way God not only inspired the writing, but God's spirit was involved in the preservation, the protection, and the delivery of what you have today in your hands, the Bible. Okay, so we're going to look at that. The origin and authenticity of what we call the New Testament, you might be surprised to know, is supported by a much greater body of evidence than exists for Homer, for Plato, for Socrates, all three combined. Nobody quite, listen, nobody questions Homer. Nobody questions the writings of Socrates or Plato. We just accept them as Socrates and Plato. But we have a much greater body of evidence to support the authenticity of the New Testament than we do to support the authenticity of the writings of those three particular uh, Greek writers. And yet, misgivings abound on the origins of the New Testament. We start with the writers of the original documents, which are meticulously copied and distributed to the churches of the first century. Now, understand, we're going to go really fast here. This is Cliff's Notes version. If, listen, if I really dug in and we got, into the, we got into, the, into the weeds here and we started filling in all of the blanks, all of the blanks of, of, of the in-between uh, these points, these high, high points that I'm going to make, we would be here, listen, you would have to, you, we would skip lunch, uh, we would have to skip dinner, we'd probably be here until late tonight, and then I'd have to say, you know what, I'm tired, we'll come back and we'll finish talking about this tomorrow. But, uh, but I want to just give you some of the highlights, okay? So we're going to start with the writers of the original documents, they're copied, they're distributed, very meticulous process uh, of doing so. And so the churches of the first century, they have these letters, they have these gospels, These are the eyewitness accounts of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. What he taught, how it spread, how to apply his teaching. And so the second generation of church leaders, men like Polycarp and Ignatius, who were students of John, Clement, who was a student of Paul, people who could verify the authorship and authenticity 
They collect. They assemble. They protect these documents. They reference, even quote from them in their own writings. These people, many of whom gave their lives, preserved and protected the writings of the apostles well into the second and third century. We know what books were accepted by the church to be authentic because guess what? We have evidence. We have evidence, including the Muratorian fragment, named after the man who discovered it, on it a list of accepted writings for the church which dates back to the late 2nd century. We also have the works of 2nd and 3rd century church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, uh, Eusebius, and Athanasius, just to name a few. You say, I've never heard of any of those men. I say to you, that's a real shame. And you, and you know something? Uh, I think those of us who are church leaders really should take the blame for that. Because, listen, I'm all, I'm all for talking about Peter, James, and John, but, but we got to talk about these guys as well. We need to talk a little bit more about, the, about our history uh, as, a, as, a, as a church. We need to go back and we need to look at these second and third generation Christians and learn who these people were and what their contributions were. These men in their writings, they list, they quote from, they refer to the 27 books of your New Testament as inspired scripture. There was no doubt, no doubt among, uh, among these men that these were inspired scripture. Irenaeus, for or Irenaeus, actually, I should pronounce that right. I'm just, I'm just so conditioned by, uh, by uh, West Virginia uh, uh, semantics. Uh, in West Virginia, we say Irenaeus, but it's actually Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp, who was a student of John the Apostle of Christ. So you see, Irenaeus is a third generation Christian, right? Right? And so he writes in the late second century, quote, these sacred books clearly reveal to us the apostles' teaching, end quote. The sacred books to which he refers are what we now call the New Testament. He recognizes that they are divinely inspired, and he goes on to say, quote, We have known the method of our salvation by no other means than those by whom the gospel came to us, which gospel they truly preached, but afterward, by the will of God, they delivered to us in the scriptures to be, for the future, the foundation and pillar of our faith, end quote. Irenaeus, writing less than a hundred years after the time of the apostles, testifies to the work of God, not only in the writing, but also in the preserving and delivering of this testament to future generations. He has personal knowledge of the origins of these writings. He accepts them as authentic, as inspired, and as necessarily enduring. Now, let's fast forward. Let's get in the Wayback Machine. We're going to go forward now. The New Testament wasn't canonized or officially declared sacred by the church until the 4th century. Now, this is a real problem for some people because this is where they think the New Testament came from. The fourth century. Wrong. Wrong. We just didn't officially declare it sacred until the fourth century. By this time, Christianity is no longer a fringe and persecuted sect. In addition to the, to the authentic writings of the apostles, there are fake gospels, fake epistles. And so it becomes necessary to kind of put an official stamp on this collection of writings. The same collection that had been preserved and protected for 250 years from the time that they were first handed down by the apostles. And this was done. This, this is a miracle. I just, I just want to preface this by saying I, 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 I see this and I understand it and it is nothing short of a miracle. So how did they do this? How did they canonize? How did they officially declare uh, the scriptures sacred? Well, they hold, uh, they hold three separate localized councils which occurred in three different locations, beginning with the Council of Laodicea in 360 A.D., A.D. 360. is the Council of Laodicea. It's a local council. Church leaders from that region, they come. What do they do? They come and they affirm that the 27 books that you have in your hand that you call the New Testament is the inspired Word of God. 
They do this two more times in two other regions, uh, ending with the Council of Hippo in A.D. 393. 33 years. 33 years, three different councils. Three different councils are called for church leaders in each region, and they all separately and unanimously affirmed the New Testament as you have it today, along with the 39 books of the Old Testament, to be the divinely inspired Word of God, and as such, the rule of faith and practice for the church. That is nothing short of miraculous. Do you know how hard it is to get a bunch of church leaders in a room and get them to agree on anything? I'm only, listen, I'm only part joking here. But this just didn't happen once. It happened two more times. Ending with the Council of Hippo. And all three councils that had different demographics, by the way. It wasn't the same group of church leaders. They were different church leaders. All of them are coming together and they all end up with the same confession. And that confession is that these 27 books, the 39 of the Old Testament, is the inspired Word of God. And by the way, they did this two more times in much larger global ecumenical councils. So two more times, they get the whole, the, as, as if, you know, well, we just want to make sure that you people over here agree with these people over here, and everybody agrees with these people. So you do this two more times. Now we're all in agreement, right? And they, guess what? They were all in agreement. They affirmed over and over again. There was never any question. There was not, as it has often been characterized, as some dudes unilaterally deciding what books to keep and what be- books to throw out. Never happened. There were debates about apocryphal books, but because, because their origins couldn't be, uh, couldn't be affirmed, it was agreed upon that they should not be included. We don't, we don't know if this is authentic or not. But it wasn't, it wasn't people deciding, okay, we're just, you know what, we, we like these books, we don't like, the, it wasn't like that at all. These were the ordained leaders of Christ's church merely affirming what has been since the time of the apostles considered to be the inspired word of God, the Bible, Old and New Testament, and listen, and we should reverence it as such. As for the men and women who paid with their own blood to write, to compile, to protect, and to defend it, to print it for the masses, to translate it into languages that can be read and understood, their name should never be forgotten. Nor should we, the church, ever cease to tell their stories. Because if it were not for them, our spiritual forerunners, we would not be here today. We owe these men a debt of gratitude. That's a lot, I know, but stick with me. I got two more points. According to Paul, not only is all Scripture inspired, Scripture is useful. Now that I've got your head swimming in theology and history, let's get practical. Paul uses two words to flesh out the usefulness of Scripture, two groups of words, rather, two pairs of words to flesh out the usefulness of Scripture. I want you to look again at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The first pair, teaching and reproof, have to do with what we believe. Absolutely, all Scripture is useful for teaching. Knowing what we know now, according to Paul, the whole of both Testaments must be studied, not just the Gospels, but the Law and the Prophets as well. They should together form the tapestry of what we believe, of our doctrine and of our teaching. And you can't have teaching without reproof. The word is going to sting sometimes. That's reproof. It's conviction. It's going to call you out. It's going to make you uncomfortable. You cannot have teaching without reproof. The word is going to sting sometimes. And if it doesn't sting sometimes, then you're not reading it right. If 
if you don't leave here on Sunday morning once in a while stinging a little bit, I'm probably not teaching it right. Somebody said to me, I just love the Bible. It just makes me feel so, so wonderful. I said, does it, does it ever, does it ever like convict you? Oh, no, no, no. That same person also said, I, I just love this certain, uh, this certain Texas tele-evangelist because he just makes me feel so wonderful. Man, he just, he just makes me feel like, you know, just God just loves me. I said, that's great because God does love you, but do you ever feel conviction when you... Oh, no. And he says he doesn't preach on those parts because he believes that God is a God of love. I said, well, let me tell you something. He is a God of love, but he is also a God of judgment. It is possible this morning for you to be loved all the way to hell. You can feel loved all the way to hell. You cannot have teaching without reproof. The Bible's going to, the word is going to sting sometimes. Together, teaching and reproof produce the blessing of sound doctrine. And hopefully, sound doctrine is the basis this morning for what you believe. The second pair of words that Paul uses correction and training in righteousness. Look at verse 16 correction and training in righteousness. Now, whereas the first two groups of words have to do with what you believe, what we believe, this second pair, correction and training and righteousness, have to do with how we behave. The word translated correction comes from the Greek word for straight. The New Testament, or the New Living, rather, translation renders this to say it, say it straightens us out. That was usually what my grandfather said before he took off his belt. I'm going to straighten you out. Anyone ever been straightened out before? Yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, I'm a better man for it. Well, that's, that's what this word correction uh, comes from, a word that means straight. It's a koine word for straight. The word's going to straighten us out. Scripture is meant to be useful in a practical way. It's going to straighten you out once in a while. It's going to straighten you out. If you respond correctly to conviction, if you accept reproof, and that's the problem. Some of us just won't receive it, won't accept it. Man, I've, I've sat down and I've had, I've had uh, uh, visits with people. Now, you, you can call them whatever you want. I've sat down to discipline people. I mean, if you want to characterize it like that. I like to think of them as conversations. It's just two people having a conversation. And my daughter's triggered down here because she always knew that that was trouble. When dad sat down to have a conversation. I wasn't, listen, I wasn't like my mother. Uh, my mother, man, she'd lose her mind. Uh, for me, it was a business transaction. But when I would, I would, I sit down sometimes with people to straighten them out, and some people they just aren't teachable. They just will not receive correction, and they will do all sorts of things. They'll talk over you. I love it when they do that. Some people will just get mad. Some people will storm out. Some people will threaten you. Scripture is meant to be useful in a practical way. It's meant to straighten us out. If ever I sit down with you and I, I try to correct you in some way, please understand, I'm not, I'm not doing it to be a meanie. I'm not, I'm not being a bully. It's because I love you. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to try to straighten you out. 
Because, listen, if you don't get straightened out, you will end up going a very crooked way. And that crooked way could lead you straight to hell. You've got to respond correctly. And if you respond correctly to conviction, if you accept reproof, if you receive correction, it will straighten out your life. We're all familiar with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your, your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your path. How does He do that? How does God straighten out your path? He does it through the correction that comes from His Word. He does it through the correction that comes from His Word. But God's not picking on you. I'm not picking on you. He's trying to straighten out your path. And so, and so Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is about receiving correction. It's about accepting reproof, trusting in the Lord with all your heart, not leaning on your own understanding, not talking over the preacher when he's trying to show you something in God's Word to correct something you believe or something you're doing that is inconsistent that will lead you away from Christ. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your path. He does it through the correction that comes from His Word. And it readies you to receive the positive effect of training in righteousness. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will what? Be like his teacher. Jesus wants us to be like him. And so Scripture is useful. And not just in Sunday morning sermons, but for establishing what you believe and for directing how you behave. It is useful for life, all of life. Teaching and training you to be more like Jesus. Scripture is not only useful, Scripture equips. Scripture equips. I want you to look now at verse 17. Paul says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Again, I so love the reminder Hannah gave us all this morning. I hope you were paying attention. I hope you were paying attention. Because the Word of God is your equipment. It is your equipment for life. You want to really, you want to really screw up your life? Try to live it on your own terms instead of on God's. I guarantee you will screw your life up royally. This is your equipment. This is your equipment for living life on God's terms. Now, you can't see it, but because the English translation, uh, it kind of hides it. You, you can't see it here in English. But Paul actually uses two forms of the Greek word for equip, an adjective and a participle. When he puts them together, literally he says, equipped, equipped. You're equipped, equipped. The rules of grammar are different in the Greek language. But Paul's making a powerful point. Essentially, he is saying that the inspired Word of God is designed to super-equip, hello, the man or woman of God. It's not just your equipment, it's your super-equipment. Super-equipment. Because listen, it's not just words for living, they're inspired words of living. This isn't just a self-help book. This is the Word of God, breathed out by God to super-equip you. So not only is the Word itself powerful, but it is empowered, it is endued, endowed with the Holy Spirit so that you are equipped-equipped, super-equipped. I love this today. Are you loving this? He's super equipping you so that you can be a man or woman of God. And if you want to be a man or woman of God, listen to me today. If you want to be a man or woman of God, you must be, before all else, a man or woman of the Bible. 
You must be a man or woman of the Bible. My grandfather used to say, you, can build, you, you can't build anything without the right tools. It's interesting because <clears throat> I had the privilege yesterday of, of, of going to uh, the cemetery uh, to be with uh, uh, Les Lene and their family uh, and perform the uh, interment, the committal uh, for Les's father who passed away recently. And uh, it's interesting because uh, uh, I, I see a lot of my grandfather in your dad, uh, that generation. Uh, they had something that I, I wish I wish that we would have paid closer attention to. Uh, you know, no nonsense. And so my grandfather used to say, you can't build anything without the right tools. And he used to drive him nuts, man. If I grabbed a screwdriver and started trying to pound a nail with it, he would get so mad at me. You know, I remember, I remember when he was teaching me how to mow the yard. My grandfather was blind, and so he used, he used a, lot of, a lot of stimuli to, uh, to, to get you. And so I'll never forget, I will never forget him sitting here going, this is the tree. And he'd beat my leg. I mean, he'd beat it till it was red. This is the trim side, Mike. This is the trim side. That tool will work better if you use it for its intended purpose. So you can't build anything without the right tools. So before we do anything, we had to lay out the tools that we were going to need. And man, my grandfather was particular about his tools. Whew. You did not put his hammer away dirty. No. And he knew, too. <laughs> He may have been blind, but whew. But well, how true. Think about that. You can't build anything without the right tools. To build something, anything, you need the right equipment. Christian life is no different. This is the equipment. This is, the, this is a unique life that you and I have been called. And it requires unique equipment to build. Amen? If you want to build a Christian life, you better, you better read the Bible. We've been called a unique life, and it takes unique equipment. You need a lamp for your feet. You need a light for your path. You need a certain type of shoe. Amen? You need a shield. You need a sword. The equipment you need is right here, church. It's right here. The testimony of God's Word is that His breath, the breath of God and his breath, the, his breath is everything. He breathed out what is contained within the pages of Scripture. These are not common or idle words. They are holy words. They are words of hope. They are words of truth. They are words of life. So what have we learned today? How can we apply it to better study and understand the Bible? Listen to me. You must read the Bible with reverence to God who breathed it out so that it could transform your life. When you open your Bible, you should read it with the knowledge and understanding that it is the very breath of God. Finally today, I'll never forget where I was sitting on another February the 25th morning. The hand-built pew I was sitting on was really hard. And the draft was cold inside that old church on the hill where I was saved, February the 25th. Open in my hand was the Bible that had once belonged to my dad. And I heard the preacher say this, quote, This is either the word of God or it isn't. And you got to choose which one of those that you believe is true. And if you believe it's true, then you'd better pay attention to do what it says. End quote. He was right. Either all of Scripture is God-breathed, or it is not. Either it is useful, or it is not. Either it equips, 
or it does not. The same could be true could be true of the gospel. Either Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost, or he did not. Either he died on a cross in your place, or he did not. Either he rose from the dead, or he did not. And if you believe that he did, if you believe that this is, if you believe that this does, then hear me today, you're responsible to respond. You are responsible to read, to study, to do what it says you should do. Would you stand to your feet with me this morning? Stand to your feet. The word of God says this, be holy for I am holy. God says, be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. You say, Pastor Mike, that's a tall order. It is, but I have good news for you today. You're not alone. You see, he's equipped you for holiness. This is the word of God. And if you believe that today, then believe this. The Bible says, Jesus said, come, all you who are weary and thirsty, and I will give you rest. If you're here today, and you're not living right, if you're not walking in a right relationship with God, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to grab hold of the person sitting next to you. If you don't want to do that, I want to encourage you to just come. We're going to sing here in just a minute. Just come. I'll be standing right over here to your right. My wife will be standing right over here to the left. Come. Come and let us pray with you. Let us call on the name of the Lord because the Bible, listen, the word of God says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You need to be saved today. The word of God says you can be saved today. He's a life giver. He's a chain breaker. You say, Pastor Mike, I've tried this road before and I keep messing up. Well, let me tell you, the word of God says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's word will straighten you out. You just got to trust it. You got to trust him. And you got to stop trying to do this on your own. Because God never intended for you to do it on your own. You don't listen. I got good news for you today. You don't have to figure it all out. You just have to trust that he already has just got to trust in him if you need prayer today let us pray for you if you need encouragement today listen if you want to hang around after church and talk we can go to the war room and talk don't leave here today don't leave here today without coming to God and saying Jesus I surrender I place my life in your hands. I can't do this on my own. Lord, help me to trust in you. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. What a miracle it is. This book that I hold in my hand. What a powerful thing it is. God, thank you. You moved heaven and earth so that I could hold this copy of your word in my hands. 2,000 years ago and beyond, you spoke to holy people who wrote these things down. And you spoke them for me. I thank you 
Thank you for loving us enough to correct us, enough to show us a better way, a more excellent way. God, help us. Help us to be men and women of your word so that we can walk in that way. So that our lives could bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together. Amazing grace, amen. Amazing grace. Uh, I'm 
so glad y'all are here this morning. So glad. This is the greatest privilege I've ever had in my life to get to study the Word of God with you. Uh, please join us next week. Bring a friend. And now, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. Go scatter dark part, darkness. Break the chains of despair. Move some mountains. Be the church. Make it a great week.